Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, June the 2nd, 2016. This episode 1799 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because you guys made the show today. Like you make most of the shows, really, between voting on the shows for Tuesday, doing feedback for Monday, questions for the expert counsel. Well, today is listener calls, so that means you, some of you anyway, in the last week picked up the phone and you matched some numbers. Those numbers are 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You've left me a message and you want me to respond to it. I've chosen, what is it, seven calls to respond to today. Here's what we're going to be talking about. Number one... A convention of the states, also known as a constitutional convention, calling the government out and uh, de defining states' rights. And, boy, there's a lot of especially conservative uh, talking heads on the radio right now saying this would be what we need. This is how to do it. Caller calls in and says, might that actually be a bad idea that could blow up in our face? The caller and I are on the same, way, same wavelength here. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Next, we've got a question on daylilies. Yeah, daylilies, the pretty little orange flowers that grow on the side of the road. Can you eat those? Or do they make you sick? Or will they kill you? Are they toxic? Are they poisonous? Who knows? Well, the truth is, daylilies are edible, but, and it's a big ass but. And we also have to be careful for our kitty friends as well. You'll learn all about that today. What about turkeys for profit? I got a guy calling in for tur a turkeys for profit question. And uh, this is one I would normally kick to Darby Simpson, even though it wasn't asked of him, because he has a lot more experience with turkeys than I do. But we're at the time of the year where if you're going to put poults on the ground, poults are baby turkeys, by the way, you got to do it really, really soon. So I'm going to give him my best answer. And in this situation, I think uh, it's a test thing anyway. And I'll give you my thoughts on how I would test the market, so to say. Um, I also have a question from someone that says, hey, uh, I need like a million dollars worth of business insurance to do business with a client. That seems like there's no way I could afford to do that. And, and what do I do? Oh, the, oh, by the way, the client caved in and took me on without the insurance. So what do I do in the future here? I have some thoughts on it. Next, I got a caller that says, hey, uh, we're going to be moving in like seven, eight months. And uh, we're going to be moving and we want to move like 1,500 miles from where we are. And it's kind of hard to buy a house, so what do we do? That's a dilemma a lot of you are in because a lot of us have decided wherever we are, we want to be somewhere else. And there's a transitional period and a time where we've decided this is the general area and we're going to be here for a while and then go there and we're going to have all our stuff and we have to sell our house and what do we do? Um, I think there's a lot of it depends there, but in this situation, I think I know what it depends on. Uh, next up, got someone that says, hey, Jack, you know how you always say that blaming guns for violence is stupid? Well, is blaming credit cards for death, debt, debt, death, is blaming credit cards for debt equally stupid? Um, sort of, but no. And we'll talk about that. And, you know, my softened stance on credit cards and what's softened and what hasn't. And... When and how should people uh, police serve an arrest warrant? We got a caller that can tell us very upset about something that happened, and I understand why it would be upsetting. And the police making an arrest where they have an outstanding warrant, uh, by the way, but what would seem like an inappropriate time. Those of you who know how tough I am on law enforcement, especially oath-breaking law enforcement, 
officers, or I should call them oath-breaking pieces of shit, which is what you are when you break your oath, you might be surprised at how much I'll side with law enforcement in this case. And when I'm done, I think you'll understand why. Because while I am an idealist in my mind, I am a pragmatist in reality. There are certain things I think should be a certain way, but I know also the way things are, and we have to deal with the way things are as we transition to the way things should be. Then I've got a great closing song for you today. I've got one that's going to make you think a lot today if you listen to it, and I bet most of you, while you've heard music by the, by the person that's singing it, um, if nothing else because I've played it, you've never heard it before. And uh, some of you know a lot of songs by this individual, but this will be one of those ones like many where you go, wow, I didn't know that that guy did stuff like that. It'll make you think, and it might make you turn off your cell phone for a little while, just an hour or two, and take a drive and, you know, not take the right way home. Take the long way home. Anyway, before we get into all that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two for you today from Alex Shrugged. I have trade unions are outlawed in England. That's an interesting read. You might want to look at it. It's building up there, guys. And then we have Napoleon Saves Liberty by Becoming a Dictator. And I also have in other news, the Rosetta Stone is discovered in Egypt, 1799. A mammoth is found preserved in the ice of Serbia. It's dead, although the carcass has been discovered before now. This is the first fully documented case. And George Washington rides in glory to his ancestors. His final words are... Tis well, he was 67. I want to read Napoleon Saves Liberty by Becoming a Dictator because my take is different than Alex Shrugged, even though I completely agree with his take and think it's valid as well. And I like when we have different takes on it. So Alex has put this together for us today. Corruption is everywhere in France. The law of hostages charges the local nobles for every theft and, and deports four nobles for every French patriot murdered. It's an ugly business. People are starving. Crop failures and the British blockade has made a bad situation even worse. The people need help. One of the five members of ruling directory is an idealist. He calls upon Napoleon Bonaparte to help recognize the government, reorganize the government. Napoleon is very popular, a winner amongst so many who have failed. He has come to the French Revolution filled with optimism. He wanted to eliminate corruption and have people return to the simple life. As Napoleon approaches Paris, the citizens cheer. Even the directory cheers not realizing what is to come. When there are rumors of another reign of terror, the legislature votes to leave Paris. Napoleon addresses the government and in a series of speeches says, quote, no, I do not want to be a dictator, and quote, he then sends his soldiers to flush out the traitors. Traitor being anyone defined as not in full-throat support of Napoleon. A little over one-fifth of the legislature survives. And two members of the directory survived. Napoleon and the two remaining directors write a new constitution for France with all the messy direct democracy stuff in it. He believes the people are not educated enough to make such decisions for themselves. My take by Alex Shrug, Napoleon was willing to take over the government because it needed someone to straighten it out. But then he required a push from his brother, who was a member of the legislature. He also needed the support of a critical member of the directory. The panic that ensued over rumors of a new reign of terror reminded me of the panic that gave Adolf Hitler dictatorial powers. The German Reichstag fire caused a lot of chaos. A known communist was caught on the scene. He admitted to starting the fire. All it takes is one knucklehead associated with your group, and you are going down with him. The Communist Party also lost its credibility in the government. Adolf Hitler urged martial law to be declared and civil liberties suspended. They hardly had time to think. They just did it. 
and with a power play more legal than Napoleon's and millions of times worse. Or 9-11, right? I mean, this is where Alex and I agree. And then, oh, we need the Patriot Act and redefining what a financial relationship is and spying on everybody's cell phone and the TSA feeling up old ladies. I mean, we just had to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, as though we can't learn from history. So I agree exactly with what Alex struggled. But what I like I just zoned in on in this was the last sentence in in the in the segment. He believes that the people are not educated enough to make such decisions for themselves. You have just described every politician everywhere. That's that's what they believe. They believe the people are too stupid to make decisions, but they're smart enough to give me the power to make decisions for them. This is the key critical power with the state and government. Here's the issue. On one level, they're totally wrong, and on another level, they're totally right. If you give people direct democracy power, and they're able to use it, you have what we learned here about, as John Adams called it, the tyranny of the majority. So as long as we can get 1% more of the people to want something like, oh, let's get rid of all those pesky people of another faith, color, religion, etc., then we can legally, with air quotes around it, do anything we want to them, like put them in a concentration camp, kill them, deport them, whatever it is, right? Uh, or we can oppress the minority by saying we have an official state religion, and while there's freedom of religion, sort of, you will live under our religious beliefs, or, or what have you. And that can always happen. So I want you to think about this when you when you think, well, how awful for elected officials to think that the people are too uneducated to make such decisions. How many stupid people do you see on TV all the time when they're asked questions like, uh, during the Revolutionary War, who did the United States fight? Um, uh, Russia, right? Stuff like that. How many idiots are out there? Would you say the majority of people in this country are highly educated astute individuals that are switched on to what's going on and care about liberty? Or are they morons? And there are there enough morons that people with some brains can simply shift the morons on an issue and gain control. So our government was one that has some limit on the direct democracy by being a representative democracy in the form of a republic. Anybody that says, we are not a democracy, we're a republic, doesn't understand the words they're using. We are a democracy, a representative democracy in the form of a republic. Okay, At least that's what we're supposed to be. We're really an oligarchy, but I'm, I'm, I'm going with the what we're supposed to be thing here. This is the problem. When those people that think you're too stupid get in power, they then do whatever they want, not what they were sent there to do, justifying it with, you're too stupid. And some of, some of the people are too stupid. That doesn't mean that the person they sent off to do things is benevolent and doing the best they can. Sometimes that person, like many times that person, is actually a, a conniving, lying psychopath. Now, how do we, how do we rectify this? To me, people are smart enough to make their decisions for themselves in their own lives. What they're not smart enough to do, either through direct democracy or representative democracy, is make the determinations for how others should live for themselves in their daily lives. And we know there's only one way for that to happen, and I'll leave it at that. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. 
Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Hey guys, if you checked out the TSP Gear Shop lately, we offer awesome t-shirts promoting the Second Amendment, the 299 Days Project, the Sentinel Project, and more. We also offer things you just won't find anywhere else, like custom Kydex sheaths for the Mora Number 2 knife. Check it out at tspgear.com. And with that, let's go ahead and take the first call, which will dramatically, dramatically fit, beautifully dovetailed into the history segment. And no, I didn't plan it that way, just as so often happens. You guys are in sync with each other, including with Alex, and it worked out that way. Hey, Jack. This is Troy in Denton, Texas, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the concept of the Constitutional Convention of the States. Uh, I hear a lot of people gung-ho, yeah, we should have this Constitutional Convention, and in my mind, that's an exceedingly bad idea because I think most of the people actually at that convention might be far more likely to want to gut our liberties rather than protect our liberties. What do you think? Thanks, Jack. You see where this is going, right? Um, what is a good time to call a convention of the states or constitutional convention uh, and propose amendments and attempt to get them ratified through the legislature? Um, well, I, I guess you would have to look at the direction of the country and say, what would two-thirds of the states be willing to do right now? What would two-thirds of the states be willing to do right now? I'd like to remind you of the following. You are living in a country that elected Barack Obama twice. You are living in a country where the leading presidential candidates on the Democratic side are a lying, stealing, conniving horrible person that spent more time with the FBI looking over her shoulder and a self-described socialist. You're living in a time that's seen an awful lot of ridiculous gun legislation passed due to hysteria. God knows what will happen next. Oh, think of the children. I mean, what exactly do you think the direction of the country is? And I'm not going to say it's all bad. But a lot of you that are of the conservative side that are really hip on this Constitutional Convention thing, some of the things that I think are positive, you don't think are positive. In other words, I think it's great now that that gay people can get married. Not because I particularly care about the lives of individual gay people, but I believe that if there is to be law, there is to be equal protection under it. And to exclude a group of people from a legal binding contract because of their sex is unconstitutional. So I think some of the people that are really driving hard for this Constitutional Convention are the ones that want to say, we want the ability of states once again to persecute people who we don't agree with their lifestyles. I'm not really on board with that. I think some are very pro-gun rights, which of course I am. However, I don't know that the majority of this country is at this point. Especially the ones that would be activist enough to get involved with something like this. I mean, they are teaching your children to be afraid of guns in school. They are teaching your children, if you see a gun, call the police. They're not saying, unless it's your dad's gun in a locked case or something like that. They're saying, like, if you see a gun, you got to tell somebody. Right, they, 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 we're living in a country where people have 
actually stood for and allowed this bullshit where doctors are asking patients, do you have a gun, as part of the, the bullshit that came out of the Affordable Care Act. I, I know you want to believe that the majority of people in this country truly want liberty and freedom. I want to believe it too. I also would love to believe that the Easter Bunny really will bring me chocolate and eggs. I would love to believe that the Tooth Fairy really will bring my grandson money when his first teeth fall out. And I would really believe that eight tiny reindeer will land on the roof of my house and a big fat guy in a red suit will bring me a bunch of shit. I, I would love to believe all that, but, you know, I believe in Santa Claus, but I don't believe in, you know, you know what I'm saying, guys. I don't, for you have some younger kids, you listen to the show, I don't want to ruin anything for anybody, but I believe in the spirit there, right? But not the... Um, the delivery mechanism, right? So there's a lot of things in life I would love to believe. I would love to believe that our elected officials, despite their differences of opinion, really do have the best interest of the people of the country at heart and are not beholden to special interest groups, lobbyists, and lots of money. I'd like to believe that, but you'd think me a fool, justifiably, if I made that case to you. If I came on the air and said, you know, guys, I've, I've rethought everything. You know what? We really need to give our elected officials the benefit of the doubt. These guys are doing the best they can. They have constituents to be holding to. You do have to take some money to run for office. You know, this is our system. It's not perfect, but it's a pretty damn good one. And we should, you know, just really support our elected officials. You'd be like, you, you, you've gone batshit crazy. Okay, well, if you if you think that, then thinking that getting all of these people together from the state level in a convention of the states to determine whether to restrict government further or to restrict people further, especially right now, it's kind of the same thing. What you're saying is, oh, those guys in D.C., those guys are bought and paid for. But our guys at the state level, no, they're good to go. They're, do they're the ones that really care. They're the ones that really try hard. Man, it's easier to buy off state legislatures than it is federal. It, it, and there's more of them, so there's more moving parts, and there's individual localized politics to deal with. But where have the greatest incursions on liberty come from in the last 10 years? The federal government or the states and the cities and the towns and the HOAs? See, we're actually in a radically weird time in history where the greatest tyrannies are being committed upon people internally within our country by the smallest bodies of government. Because what we've done is we've lost the concept of each lower body of government pushing back against the higher body of government. What's happened is the states have said it's not worth fighting, but we can monopolize our own people. And then the counties have said, well, there's nothing we can do about the state, so we'll get, we can, we can, we can you know, tyrannize our people, even though they don't use that word. And the cities go, well, well we got to make a living too, guys. The county's taking their share, the state, the feds. we got to impose taxes. we got to impose restrictions. we got to run our cities our way. I, I think if you are actually pro-liberty, that the, the, the best way that you can do things now is to, is, to, is to use the power of the republic as it was designed. The individual member states having sovereignty in and of themselves and being willing to stand up and find the state that's most closely aligned with what you want, because what you want and I want may be significantly different. I do want cannabis legalized. I think it's preposterous that we put people in jail for a plant. I think it's criminal. I think it's insane. But 
when I look at the totality of things and I have to choose between do I live in Colorado or do I live in Texas, Colorado does so many other things that I find reprehensible, I'm willing to wait on cannabis legalization for what I have in return for it. And I, I think that that's something that will eventually come. And I don't, it's not, it's not deeply personal to me. It's not like I want to be out burning a doobie every weekend or anything. But I don't want a person kidnapped and put in a cage with people that are like murderers and actual criminals because they had a plant or because they had a certain amount of a plant and now it's not a ticket. Now it was intent to distribute because you had more of the plant than somebody else. I, I find this reprehensible. But if I wanted to be politically active, and I don't, but if I did, then I would take up that cause within my state through education and informing of the people. If I, if I had different circumstances in my life, there is a very solid chance right now that I would be in New Hampshire as part of the free state movement. Um, and there's multiple things going on in New Hampshire. There's not just the free state project. But they've put more libertarians into office than anybody ever has. Actual libertarians. They, and they do it very, very smart. They don't go, I'm a libertarian and I'm running. They go like, they pay their two bucks to get on the, on the ballot. And they go, I'm a Democrat. And then another one goes, I'm a Republican. And they run as Republicans and Democrats. And they've actually had races going on up there where both the Democrat and the Republican running against each other for a particular state house position were both actually libertarians. I, I think these are, are more, useful tactics right now because can you just imagine what California wants out of a constitutional convention? What about New York? What, what, what do you think they want? Okay. And then you got to think about, again, what does liberty really mean? Liberty means that not only are you able to live your life your way if it upsets or offends someone else, but that other people are able to do the same thing even if it upsets or offends you as long as they're not harming you. So the one advantage there would be, if you look at the electoral map, the, the majority of the states, for those on the right, anyway, this would be an advantage, are actually right-leaning states. And when you get a two-thirds majority, it's not like the electoral college where California gets more say than you know uh, uh, Nebraska. Each state has its own individual capability to, to cast a vote in a convention of the states and to ratify things. So that, that does mean the right might be able to pull, but what does the right want to do right now? Does the right want to further restrict government, or do they want the ability at their state level to further, further restrict other people? I, I don't see it going good for either side right now. I really don't. Now, if there was a, a list of things that were going to be there, and those were the only things that could be there, and they were all things that restricted government, I think it was a, a, a fine idea, but that's not how our government or constitution works. So I, I think it's a I think it's a bad idea right now, and I wish it wasn't. But again, I also wish the Easter Bunny would bring me you know eggs and chocolate once a year. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, I had a question about daylilies. Keep seeing where people are talking about them being edible, and I look online and there seems to be conflicting information. I just wanted to see a. What's your opinion of them? Is that they are edible, and what you do with them? What parts you eat with them? Leaves, flowers? Just kind of general rundown. If you got any information on it, thanks, man. Have a great day. There's a lot of misinformation about the edibility usability of daylilies. Let's start out with the the, the truth and the positive. The actual plant daylily 
is absolutely edible and non-toxic to humans. Many lilies, and from my research, though I can't confirm it yet, including daylilies, can be highly toxic to cats. This, in general, is not a huge problem, except when people have really confined, tight backyards, and the cats don't have a lot of stuff to play with, and then they choose to do this, right? Uh, or they have lilies in a vase, and then the, 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 the water leaks out and the cat leaks out. I mean, it can kill a cat like that. And I have not been able to confirm that daylilies don't do this to cats, which is why they're not planted here. I was going to do it until I came up with this. Because the big problem for cats is if they walk through daylilies and it gets like on their fur and they lick it, that is enough to kill them, and I don't want to kill my cats. Now, since we don't have cats dropping all over, I, I, I wonder how often that actually happens. But I've read many stories of things like people have a bouquet of lilies, water gets on the table, cat drinks the water, cat dies. And very, very fast and very, very painful kidney failure, shut down death. It's a terrible, terrible way for an animal to die. It is the same type of death, but for different reasons that an animal that consumes uh, antifreeze dies. It just shuts their kidneys down, they swell up, and, and their body goes into full system failure. So I have that concern. This is one of the reasons people believe that lilies are poisonous. Here's the other reason. There's a whole shitload of lilies that are mildly poisonous, moderately poisonous, and highly poisonous. And there's shitloads and shitloads of types of lilies. Okay, so everything I'm about to say applies to the actual plant daylily and that plant only. And I'm not going to try to explain exactly how to identify it in an audio podcast because that would be stupid and irresponsible. But in general, these, these, these lilies are orange and yellow. And tiger lilies can look sort of like that, and the, those are not what I'm talking about. Okay? The uh, the plant that we're talking about, and I will probably say this wrong, Hemericalis fulva. Hemericalis uh, fulva. That's probably the right way to say it. Hemericalis fulva is the plant that is the true Asian day lily and these are usually god i have to keep very careful here the ones you see growing along roadsides and stuff like that okay now what is usable on the day lily pretty much everything um again you got to know what you're looking at but the new shoots that come up those are quite delicious the tubers themselves uh once they are fully developed in the fall They are quite delicious, used more like a, a root vegetable you would think of. And if we cut just the tip off them and replant it, they'll grow back. And we can propagate them that way. We can also propagate them through division, which means we take a big clump of the tubers and spread them out and build them up over time. Um, they, they kind of taste like a, a potato. The flowers are edible, and the buds of the flowers are edible. And all of them are quite good and quite delicious. And there's... You know, a more than 100-year tradition uh, with foraging of the daylily in this country that shows that this is safe. However, they do tend to make some people nauseous and sick and not feel well. It is a very small minority of people that feel that way. And I would say there's a small minority of people that think that the wonderful herb cilantro tastes like feet. Okay, So that doesn't mean they're poisonous. That just means they don't agree with certain people. 
This has added to the fear that they're poisonous. I ate one and I almost died. No, you felt sick and don't, don't, you, you shouldn't eat them. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't. Okay? So that's the daylily itself. Now, there are all other types of lilies out there, many that have been crossed and bred out of the daylily. And all of these other lilies tend to have issues and reasons they should not be eaten. Now, some of these crosses and hybrids and stuff might be edible, but you don't know until you try, and that's not a good way to do things. So I have two supporting articles for this. One's an article from uh, Mother Earth News called How to Sustainably Harvest and Eat Delicious Daylilies, and that just goes over how to do it. Okay, It doesn't really go over how to positively identify them. So I decided that if anybody out there would have good information on identification, it would be Green Dean. To some of you that don't know who Green Dean is, he is awesome. He has a YouTube channel called Eat the Weeds, and he actually has a website called uh, eattheweeds.com. And he has an article called Daylily Dilemma, and he explains everything that I've just explained, even at a higher level. And it comes down to it, if you're going to eat these things, you should be eating the original, unaltered, unmolested daylily. And if you've never eaten it or any part of it before, you should eat it in moderation to see if it agrees with you. And everything else you should just put on the no thank you. Now, I would love to hear from somebody, not that heard from their father's cousin's uncle's former roommate, or what have you, not that, I would love to hear from somebody that actually knows, does this particular plant, is it toxic to cats, or has it been messed in there? Because what we know about most of the other lilies is they are at least moderately to minorly toxic to humans, and probably for the same reasons, but they are far more uh, toxic to cats. Or is it something else that makes lilies toxic to cats? Because here's something many people don't know. You should not feed your dogs garlic, onions, shallots, alliums. Alliums are bad for dogs. They'll eat them. They won't generally kill them unless you fed them massive, massive amounts. But they do biological damage to your canine friends. But yet garlic and onion and shallot are wonderful plants. In fact, probably one of the best medicinal herbs on our planet is garlic for humans. So it is possible that there's something in lilies that's deadly to cats and harmful and harmless or even beneficial to humans. I, I don't know that. Um, but I have not been comfortable planting them on my property, and until I have 100% verification that they're not going to kill my cats, I won't. Because, like I said, I don't worry about the cat eating it. If the cat has a whole world to explore, something that probably doesn't taste good, etc., It's not going to be something that they're they're interested in, and I don't plan on making bouquets with lilies and putting them on the the, the, the table and having the cat drink the water out of it or something like that. But the, when I when I heard the concept that the cat could walk through them when they're in pollen and get pollen on their fur, and of course the cat's going to lick itself, and that alone could be enough to kill the cat. I decided if you're a cat owner with outside cats, you don't want lilies. And until I can confirm that day lilies are an exception, just like they are for humans, I'll stick with that. So if anybody knows, or knows somebody that would know that they can ask, I would love to find out, because just because the Internet says it doesn't mean it's true, 
because when I read all of the things about lilies being poisonous to cats online, they say they're also poisonous to humans, and they just lump daylily in there with everything else, which is wrong. Because if daylilies were poisonous, there'd be a lot of dead freaking people, at least if they were poisonous to humans. So uh, check out the, uh, the two articles that I'll put on daylilies on the show, and if you know anything about felines and daylilies, let me know. Hi, Zach. This is Alan in the Houston area. I uh, have a question regarding raising turkeys. I was speaking with some friends of mine this weekend, and uh, they have a family farm that they've been able to monetize by selling uh, grass-fed meat on the side. And they were thinking about adding chickens to the uh, to the operation. Uh, but we were talking about that, kind of the ups and downs, limitations, and uh difficulties, especially with uh, selling chickens at the price you would have to. I mentioned that, that I knew of people doing turkeys and uh, kind of related some of the things that you had mentioned on the air, uh, especially business-wise, on doing that, pre-ordering and all that stuff. Uh, so just wondering if you could maybe go into some of the other things, uh, practically what you would recommend on uh, a small-scale turkey operation about like what you have uh, in Central Texas area, maybe some even forage opportunities for the turkeys, uh, things to supplement their feed, uh, maybe possibly ways to uh, construct their run, that kind of thing. Anything that you have experience-wise, uh, just kind of expand that topic. Thanks. Okay, so let's start out with my limits of what I know about raising turkeys. I have successfully raised, so far, three turkeys. That's it. That is not an expert. That is not even a really big, deep, valid opinion, okay? So I'm, 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 I am guessing based on limited experience with my answer to you, first of all, giving you the best advice I can because, again, if you're going to do something this year, you are rapidly running out of time to get pulse. One thing I do know about turkeys is they have a cycle just like geese. They lay eggs for that cycle, and then they're done for the year. I'll see you next year. No more eggs. Okay, So it becomes more and more difficult as the year progresses to get poults. So I don't even know what poult availability is right now. And again, a poult is a baby turkey. A baby turkey is not a turkey chick. It's a turkey poult. I do know that. Right now, I have outside in a little tractor 15, or 16 turkey poults. Um, I've heard they have very high mortality rates as babies in the brooder. They are over two weeks old now. And they sent me, I ordered 15, they sent me 17, probably because of high mortality. I lost one, I lost the day it got here, I haven't lost any other ones. So, the way I'm doing things seems to be working out. My idea for this is, I have 15, I probably want 5, I'm going to sell 10. My idea is to sell them at $3 a pound, processed weight, on the honor system, if you come get your turkey and take it to the processor, I recommend or process it yourself. If you want me to take it to the processor and we work something out somehow to make it legal, then I have to charge more per pound because I have to take it down there and deal with all the crap. Okay, And I can't have it processed and sell it to you, but I'm sure there's a way we can work that out. So if anybody in the Dallas-Fort Worth area would like a wonderfully beautiful, broad-breasted, bronze, free-ranged, pastured turkey, please, indeed, come see me. Pre-selling is where it's all at and, and what have you. My view was this. At 15 birds, at the worst possible circumstances, I could knock on doors to my neighbors and probably get them sold. Okay? 
or I could give them away to charity. I could do something one way or another. I have not overextended myself. And the big reason I did it is when I was looking at ordering pulse with shipping and all, five or six birds, something like that was like my cutoff, and it was like $80, and I was able to get 15 for $105. And I went, well, then I can probably sell these other 10 birds. Okay? So that's where I'm at with this. As far as how I would recommend a farm with a, a larger market than I have. Remember, my customers are egg customers. We move about 30 to 40-ish dozen eggs a week. Okay, so we don't have, and we sell a lot to a few customers and then a little bits to a bunch of other customers. So we have so many customers to sell to. But if they're selling other products like this, they're more of a full-time, full-on farm operation. Maybe they go a little bigger. Maybe they could run like 50 birds, I, I think would be the highest you'd go. With turkeys, if nothing else, you could sell them into the general livestock market or what have you. The breed I've chosen is broad-breasted bronze, which is basically the ones that look like wild turkeys, but they're kind of the same as the white turkeys they raise in commercial. They get big, really, really big. And this is an advantage, but when you put them on the ground, there's a certain amount of time it takes them to get there, and, and some people don't want a 30-pound or a 38-pound or a 37-pound bird. So you may, to serve the market you're looking to serve, have to harvest them earlier than you would expect. That may not be exactly Thanksgiving. You, you see what I'm saying? And the longer you let that bird go, while it does get bigger and bigger and bigger, the more food it eats and the more it consumes. So that starts to hurt your financials. So this is a great product to test market. Now, when I've checked into getting a pastured turkey for Thanksgiving, and it's June, and you're asking around for the few people around here that do it, they laugh at you and say, maybe I can get you one next year. It, it's, it, it is a lucrative business, but yet it is a small niche number. Darby Simpson says that it's one of the products they really swing for the fences on. They look to make a really big profit, but there's not that many birds that they're running. Um, as far as supplemental feed, they're great foragers. Um, they are not big on, they do a little scratching, but nothing like a chicken. And they love, 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 absolutely adore grasshoppers. It is, it's a huge protein yield. It's a good fat yield with it. And if you have a place with a lot of grasshoppers, you can do a lot of conversion of grasshopper into turkey. The, a lot of times when you do pastured poultry, when you let them really free range and you let them get bigger, you know, than that eight to nine week window, they start to toughen up. We made turkey. We had one that was 37 pounds dressed weight and it was the most succulent, delicious meat I've ever eaten in my life. I think it's a wonderful meat product. Uh, I am, would be more of the guy that would advise the homesteader that, you know, raising three, six birds a year is the easiest meat you'll ever raise. I don't know if the most cost efficient. They do eat a lot. And depending on what kind of feed you're feeding them. But I would think a free ranged, you know, broad breasted bronze turkey eating crappy Purina feed would still be a hundred times better than a butterball. And in our case, we're feeding them this wonderful peanut-based, non-soy, non-GMO feed, and it's more expensive. They also need to eat higher protein feed for the first, I think, six weeks is what it is. So that ups your cost as well. So my advice to a company thinking about adding them on would be to go small, develop a system around them, test the market, have a small enough number that if it doesn't work out, 
you can gift it to friends and family and whatever. Okay, and then just say that didn't work, and we're not going to like die because it didn't work. All right, I would not advise somebody in the first run to run a hundred of them. I really wouldn't. I, you know, even Joel Salatin, who 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 has you know fairly large targets to make a full-time living as a farmer in his book, Pastured Poultry Profits with Broiler Chicken, says to raise the first time 50 and pretty much give them away. To develop your market, to show people a difference, and to take orders then and go in. And that might be a great way to do this. You know, put 10, 20 birds on the ground, 30 you know, on the ground, something like that. Develop your system for them and develop your market by giving them to people. And, you know, it has to do with what is the processing going to be like? Is there a place to get them processed? There's nowhere around here for me to do it like in a, in a facility where I can actually resell it. Okay, which is ironic because the facility I use, I can take a steer down there and have cattle butchered. And, I, and because they're state inspected for that, I can resell it, but I can't do it with poultry. So that is going to, like, these are all things to look at. That's my basic advice. But but again, if you would want, want one of these birds this year and you're local, let me know. And number two, if you're a homesteader and you want easy meat, raising two or four of these things, my God, uh, the meat yield is unbelievable. Unbelievable. We had 75 pounds of meat from three turkeys. So that was like after taking them apart and discarding certain things and, and just coming up with all the different cuts and pieces. Uh, and that was boning out the breasts. Okay? They were too big... That's another thing about these birds. Unless you're going you're gonna to go, okay, that bird's about 20 pounds, he's done, right? When you let a bird get up to where its live weight is over 40 pounds, and you butcher that bird, you don't just throw that thing in a vacuum sealer and throw it in the deep freezer. It, it just doesn't work. They're just too big. It, that, that bird wouldn't fit in many ovens. So that's not bad because the reality is, I know everybody loves the big, beautiful, brown, you know, full turkey on the, on the plate on Thanksgiving, The best way to cook a turkey is to break it into parts because the breast should cook one way and the dark meat should cook another way and then you break it down for stock and what have you. But wonderful birds, wonderful birds. So much so that I'm thinking next year I might bring heritage breeds on the farm even though they're smaller birds just to have some around all year round because they're one of the birds I really feel bad about when I have to take them to process them because they don't even resist. They just come walking up to you and you shove them in the crate. Um They're all crying and yelling sometimes, and I go stick my head down and look in at them. As soon as they see me, they all calm down and go back to being turkeys. They're very personable. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. How do I handle business insurance when a client requires it in order to do business with them? Last month, I started a Microsoft Excel consulting business, and I was approached by an oil field services company to be their preferred vendor for spreadsheet and VBA consulting. In order to get set up as a new vendor for that company, they require a certificate of insurance naming the client as additionally insured. The problem is that the certificate of insurance must have limits of not less than $1 million per occurrence. It just seems like that's an insurmountable hurdle while my revenue and advertising budget are both just a few hundred dollars a month. I was still able to do the work and their accounting manager accepted my invoice into their system for payment. But this experience makes me feel like if I don't have the right insurance, then I must hate money. So how do I get the insurance certificates for my corporate clientele on demand and affordably, or am I looking at the situation the wrong way? 
See, I, I think on this one, one of your problems probably is that you got sticker shock on the coverage and never actually looked at the price. Because you would think, man, a million dollars of business liability insurance, that's going to be really, really expensive. And it may be about $2,000 a year. And, and, and your advertising and marketing budget really doesn't have anything to do with the decision to get this type of insurance or not. These are the two things you have to look at with insurance. The first one is... Do you actually have the liability, and is it actually possible that someone could come after you due to that liability and win a judgment against you? And do you need the insurance for your business to cover your ass? And in, in that case, you know, you have to make a, what you determine when you think you've gotten large enough, you've gotten into situations where there's enough risk that somebody could come after you. And in some businesses, that's the day you open the doors. And in other businesses, eh, I mean, you know, what are you going to get sued for? You know, I mean, it, it, it all depends. So you have to look at that. And that's something for an attorney, honestly, to give you an opinion on, not me, when you, you do that. Then there is, because it's required. For instance, you, you have to carry a certain amount of insurance on your automobile or you can't legally drive. Now, you can debate whether or not that's right and it, whether or not that should be and whether or not that's necessary, but it doesn't matter because it is. So unless you're foolish, you would carry automobile insurance so that if you get pulled over by one of our fine officers of the law, among other things that he would be able to cite you for, would not be failure to carry insurance because in my state, they can actually tow your vehicle for not having insurance. Now, I'm not saying they always do it, but they can. And it, it does happen, and, and in some cities more than others, uh, especially at times times when those cities need some more money, because then you have to pay an extortion fee to get your vehicle back. Okay, so the, the car insurance analogy is perfect because I have insurance on my vehicles, and I have insurance on my Toyota 4Runner full coverage because, well, I, I, it's a lease. They wouldn't lease me the vehicle, so it's required, both by law and by the agreement with the leaser, Toyota, you know, Motor Services. I have to have a certain amount of insurance on it. But I carry pretty much the same insurance on my 2005 Ford F-350. Now, I, what I do when I have vehicle insurance, this is kind of an analogy back to what you're asking, I'm not going to put $50,000 worth of coverage on the vehicle itself because if they total the vehicle right now, they'd probably give me like fifteen grand for it. So I only need that much on the vehicle itself. But I'll carry a lot of insurance for things like if I get sued because it's my fault, even though I don't plan on it being my fault, you never know. There's always a risk when you drive. Some idiot could hit the brakes in front of you. You could slam into him from behind. It really is his fault, but the law says it's yours because you hit him from behind. That type of thing. Uh, like, cause, you know what happened to me yesterday? I went to pick my processed ducks up. And I'm driving in, you know, tra traffic that's starting to stack up. And... There's an exit lane, and there's a fire truck putting out a, a grass fire. And some jackass, I'm in an F-350, doing about 50 miles an hour, and I'm already on the brakes because the traffic's backing up. Some jackass on a motorcycle comes flying past me, cuts in, and hits the brakes. If I hit him and kill him, his family might sue me. So I have insurance to cover that. All right? So those are how, that's how you have to look at insurance. What do you need to cover yourself, and what do you need to meet any requirements to go along with it? It's interesting that this company caved and took you on anyway. 
probably because the liability wasn't really there and it was a blueprint policy and they're treating a little tiny firm like a great big firm. But here's why companies do this. They want to pass along the liability to you if something does go wrong, if there's any way they possibly can. And if you have insurance, it's easier for them to do that. If you don't have insurance, and because what has to happen in that, that position is company XYZ says it's not us, it's our contractor. And the, the, the person seeking satisfaction will often look at that and go, yeah, I, I'm not suing this guy that has, you know, two nickels to rub together maybe. You guys have a lot more money. But if they're able to say all of our contractors are insured for a million dollars per incident, well, then they know there's money there and you might actually be an easier target than they are. But there, there is a reality that they have a certain responsibility anyway. Just because you're a contractor for them does not mean that they should be able to shirk that responsibility. So in the end, they caved. So you have to look at this from the standpoint of, does this make sense for your business? And what's the actual cost versus the actual risk? And how many more things does it open up for you? And the biggest thing you have to do, which I can tell you haven't, is price it. You need to get on, on with an insurance company, a couple different agents from a couple different companies probably, and say, this is the business I'm in, this is the type of business I'm in, and what would it cost to get this level of insurance, and what do you think I should be carrying, and price shop it around. And then be willing to change words, because I'll give you an example. When we put insurance on Perma Ethos, we had a business directive for the company. We design, manage, and build permaculture. We design and manage permaculture farms. Okay, and we couldn't get any insurance company to underwrite us, and we changed it to we, we design and manage farms, and no problem. And you know, about the same amount of insurance you're talking about, not much money, not much money in the grand scheme of things. Now, if this is a business you're doing two thousand dollars a year with, and it's two thousand dollars for insurance, well, then that doesn't work, and you have to take the right clients and manage your risk until you can grow to the point where you can justify it. But If you are doing $100,000 in business a year and you're spending $2,000 a year to cover your ass in that business, that's 2% of revenue. That's damn cheap. It's not something you want to pay, but it's something that it makes sense to pay from a protection standpoint alone. So hopefully that makes sense for you. But always give pushback when somebody says, well, you have to have. My son lived in an apartment complex where they had to have a million dollars worth of renter insurance. And he was freaking out, and it was $200 a year. So there you go. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Peter from Nebraska. I have a question about buying a homestead in a different state. I am military, and I'm just being medically retired from Nebraska. And me and my wife would like to move to North Carolina to start our homestead. And it's about 15 hours away, roughly. And we finally found a property in school to become a nurse. And we have about, I don't know, another 10 months from now before we'll be able to move. I would love your thoughts, tips on not having optimal time to visit properties or talk to people about the local opportunity. Thanks for all your work. All right, bye. And just real quick, I made a mistake of what I said at the end. It was a half a million dollars of insurance as a renter. And it was a couple hundred bucks. And the reason it's cheap, the insurance company knows there's no way, there's no way in hell that they're going to actually ever have to pay you a half a million dollars in that situation. 
So that's how insurance companies look at things. What are, what are the what are the risks that we'll ever have to pay up to this level? And, and they kind of cap the cost with little incremental expenses beyond where they know they're never going to pay anyway. It's just a number on a piece of paper. How the hell could a person in an apartment that's paying a thousand dollars a month have a half a million dollars worth of property to insure in the, in the apartment? They don't, and they know that. So the, the apartment complex is basically saying, if uh, if your shit burns down, we're not responsible for it. Go to your insurance company. That that's what they were doing there. Anyway, so on this question, here's the situation: when you're that far away. Now we did this um, with a lot of freedom in our lives. Okay, we running a business. If I want to take off for two or three days and come down to Texas from Arkansas to look for property, I can do it. I can work my ass off and do two shows a day for a week and take a week off, and you don't even know I'm gone if I don't tell you. Doesn't happen as much as it used to because the show's got more complex and harder to do, but it, it can be done. And then our distance was a five hour drive. You have a much further distance. And it, we were coming to an area that we pretty much knew you're going to an area that's new to you. This is complicated. So I think the good idea would be to continue to familiarize yourself with the area. Absolutely be on the lookout for the right opportunity to buy a property if it comes up. But I think the best plan you could have in this situation is renting. It sucks. I certainly didn't want to do it. Uh, I mean, it's a horrible thing to have to do in some ways because you make two moves instead of one. It does cause you a lot of times to pare down a lot of crap and get rid of a lot of stuff that you really don't need anymore. Uh, so that can be good. But you could do worse than saying, well, we know we want to be near this town for jobs, you know, resources, whatever, and finding a place to rent for with a one-year lease, and then you know, kind of you, you have enough time to plan that out fairly well. And it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to worry about the color of the paint. You don't have to worry about are the cabinets new or old or whatever, and what's the water access and structure on it, because you're only going to be there a year. Get into that situation so you're on the ground and begin hunting for property. Learning the area and decide, do we really want to live in this area? And do we really want to live in this part of this area? Because if you don't, making a decision to change that becomes pretty easy for a renter and it's a lot more complex for a buyer. Now, I know that the tendency with people that want a homestead is, I, I just want my freaking homestead. Guys, I understand. I understand. I really, really, totally understand that. I felt the same way. But it's it's a very difficult thing to locate a property that you're going to buy and live in forever or even a decade from 15 hours away. It's hard. Now, there's ways to mitigate this. If you have the money and the time, You know, taking an airplane ride instead of a car ride is one way to do that. Uh, there's a way to begin to double up on it, finding a really good deal on a great storage facility and taking truckloads of crap up there and throwing it in a storage facility, then going hunting for property. So you've already started to pre-move some of your property, and that'll make you pare it down because you go, do I really want to pay somebody to store this for the next eight months? Um, those are things you could do. But what happens is you get into a situation where you're willing to settle for something that you otherwise would not have settled for because you feel stressed. And the closer you get to the day that you have to move, the more you're willing to compromise in that. And then the more you're willing to make mistakes and get emotional. And remember my rules about real estate. Emotion and real estate do not go together. They don't go. You can be as emotional as you want about your property the day after you close on it. 
Up until you close on it, you have to be a cold-hearted bastard. You don't care about the seller's needs. You don't care that it might not be there tomorrow. You don't care that there's another offer on the property. You have a number in your mind and a justifiable number of what you're willing to spend and justifiable terms, and you submit those. And if they say, well, we think, well, that's nice. Now, that doesn't mean you might not negotiate. You know, if you put in a bid at 180 grand on a property and they come back at like 200 and you actually think it kind of is worth 200, you might go, you know, we'll do 190. But you know these numbers in advance. You've already gone lower enough on the offer that you are willing to give a little bit because it's expected, right? But you don't, oh my God, I got to give it to them because this is what happens. And it's hard. It's hard. And the other thing that makes it hard is that generally when you're moving that far, you don't really give a shit what neighborhood you're in or even what county you're in. Usually you have like a center point, and you need to be a certain distance from that center point. Like you could draw with a compass around it and say somewhere in this big circle. And you might look at three houses, and it might take all day. Where if you're looking in a neighborhood, you can look at three houses in, in, in two hours and really check them out good and have lunch. And look at three more in another hour, hour and a half. All right? So it's complicated. And it's why I think you should at least consider the rental option. Because it gives you the flexibility and it gives you the ability to truly understand a place you don't live. Because the other thing we had was we had friends and family here. It sounds like from the information you gave me, correct me if I'm wrong, follow up I can do, that there's not that there for you. So you don't have this intimate knowledge you don't have like a system of support. You don't know maybe, oh, this looks like a really great place. And then when you move there, you find out there's all kinds of assholes that live there or some kind of stupid regulations that were under the table. It sounds to me like you need more time to really find the right place. So considering something like a six-month to one-year lease as a base of operations to find that, it's a year or a half a year, but it's only a year or half a year. And, and, and you could find what you really want in that time versus regretting it. Don't commit a type 1 error. Okay? With that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Max in St. Louis. I uh, just had a thought I wanted to get your commentary on. So is blaming credit cards for debt really any different than blaming guns for gun violence? Uh, details, I know you've somewhat softened your stance in recent years, but Dave Ramsey and other uh, personal finance folks, they uh, really talk about credit cards like they're they're evil and they're the devil. And if you get one, it's dangerous. It's like playing with fire and it's going to, you know, bite you every time and get you into trouble no matter what. And I just think that that's pretty off base these days. Uh, you know, you, I think people should see them as a valuable financial tool. Um, they've got ironclad consumer protection. Uh, oftentimes they're good on cars or extending a warranty on appliance purchases. Uh, we spend every dime we spend, we try and put on credit cards and we get one to two percent cash back, sometimes five percent cash back. And that's free money. And we never carry a balance. We pay them off every month. And um, some people even use them to, to travel to Europe or travel the world for free uh, by playing the airline mile games and stuff like that. So I just uh, sometimes I think that people are leaving a lot of free money on the table by, you know, just paying cash for everything and also uh, leaving a lot of consumer protection on the table, uh, kind of like you talked about uh, last week or the week before. So just want to get your thoughts on that and uh, wonder what you had to say. Thanks, Jack. Have a good show. Bye. 
Let's start off with the opening concept that blaming a credit card for debt is like blaming a gun for violence. No. And, and here's why. Um, no one, unless you're an idiot, is under any mis you know, misunderstanding that if you point a gun at something when it's loaded and pull the trigger, it will destroy what it hits. There's, there's no misgivings about that. We don't market guns as totally safe to shoot yourself in the face with. Okay, I mean, you listen to the liberal gun grabber assholes. You may think we do, but we don't do that. No one's like, this gun is safe for shooting your friends and family with. Okay? Every time you shoot somebody with this, you get cash back in miles and all the other hype, right? That, so the, 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 you're not comparing apples to oranges. You're comparing guns to credit cards. I don't even have to make an analogy. The, the analogy ends there because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Okay? A, a credit card is more like a rattlesnake. Okay? And a rattlesnake market, it is being a wonderful thing that you should take into your home. There are people who are completely, adequately prepared mentally, physically, emotionally to bring a rattlesnake into their home and do so safely and responsibly. Okay. We're giving credit cards to 19-year-old freaking morons. And by the time they get to your level of understanding, they're already effed in the A, and they are $50,000 in debt. Okay? For shit that they cannot you know, sell, it's gone, it was a consumable, it's, it's just awful. This is why people like Dave Ramsey are so opposed to them, and why I am so opposed to them on so many levels, but not everywhere. I will say this again. The only reason I have a credit card is because I can no longer reliably know that I will be able to affordably rent a car without one. I went without a credit card for 10 years, and my life was just freaking dandy. And one day it cost me an extra 500 bucks and a bunch of trauma and an hour out of my vacation because the car rental place said, oh, you can't do that. And I had to go to a different rental counter and basically plead with the guy to do it because they wanted to see my, my return itinerary and I didn't have it printed out. So we had to get it looked up on the phone and show it to him and he wasn't sure if that was good enough. So I went, okay, screw it. I'll get a credit card. Consumer protections is a valid thing. It's a valid thing. Okay. However, many cards, when used as a credit card, even though they're actually a debit card, carry similar or the same or better consumer protections. And there are many ways to start playing all of these reindeer games without having a credit card. One, for instance, did you know this? How many of you out there use PayPal? I know a lot of you do because you pay for MSB with it. And thank you for that. Thank you very much. Um, and many of you that have PayPal are aware that you can get a credit debit card from PayPal. Nice little platinum-looking thing. It looks like a really high-end card now. I remember when they first came out, people looked at it like it was something retarded. What's what this PayPal thing? Is this a real credit card or is this some bullshit? You know. Now it looks like, a, you know, and people know what PayPal is too, it looks like a nice credit card. And you can run it as a debit or a credit. Well, you can set it up so if you run it as a credit card, and sign your name, you get 1% cash back on all purchases every time you do it, period. Do you know what you have to do to make it work? You have to turn it on. 
I don't remember exactly how, but you have to go into the, your back end of your PayPal account and you turn it on. And from that point forward, every time you run that card as a credit card, even though it's just taking from your balance, you get 1% cash back. To me, that's free money. Now, as far as people traveling to Europe by playing the airline miles game and stuff, you know what? Maybe, maybe those people are doubling down because they're traveling a lot and what have you. And I'll say this. If you legitimately can use a credit card and gain from all of these things, and you legitimately are the person that absolutely pays your bill on time and never occurs any real expenses due to them, never any late fees, never any racked up debt, then you are the guy that can take a rattlesnake and bring it into your home and responsibly care for and manage a rattlesnake. That doesn't mean that the majority of other people are capable of doing it, and we shouldn't market it as though they can. Okay? Again, we are giving credit cards to 19-year-old morons. I talked to a kid the other day, 22 years old, 22 years old, got into college at 17 just because he was young, kind of like me when he went to school, been out of college for a year, $9,200 credit card debt. $9,200. How the hell did you get $9,200 worth of credit? Because I had student loans and I was paying them on time. And I got my first credit card when I was in college and I got another one and I don't really know how this all happened. Yes, he did it to himself. Okay? But when we take these credit card companies know what they're doing, the way you're describing this is almost like saying, well, I have this system for blackjack. And when I go to Vegas, I always win. And before they started adding like five decks or whatever they do to get around the card counting, your system actually was working. Okay? Um, people like you aren't how the casino buildings got built. Losers build the buildings. Winners are few and far between. That's how this is. By the way, a little aside, there was a book that came out on count cards in the system for blackjack. It was actually very, very good, and it works. It works. Uh, and when it came out, the casinos shit their pants over it. They banned it being sold in their gift shops and stuff like that. But what happened was blackjack playing went through the roof, and even when they, they people were reading the book and thought they understood the system, they were still losing their ass. And then they just, you know, like, I think they use four decks per round now. So it basically destroyed that system. And that book is still sold like crazy. I can't remember what it's called. It came out in the 70s, I think. And they actually now they sell it in the casino bookstores. Because the person reads it and thinks, oh, I got it licked, man. I'm going to go play blackjack. And you know, a few minutes later, they're out 1500 bucks and going, gee, how'd that happen? I, I thought the system worked. I, I, I don't understand. right? Well, there, there's not one deck of cards in there anymore, fool. There's four or five, something like that. This is how credit cards are. This is how they're marketed. Oh, you get free cash back. You get this, you get that. And then people that are not financially mature enough to use a debt instrument like a credit card, what happens is they justify their expenditures with all of this irrationality. And don't think it's just 19-year-old idiots because I have people I know in their 40s and their 50s that are soaked in credit card debt. And every time they get a little raise to their limit, they keep putting more and more shit on it. They become addicted to it. So there are people that could use cocaine responsibly. I know some of you are aghast now and don't think that's possible. There are people that could use cocaine responsibly. They are few and far between. They are few and far between. And for most people, it destroys their lives. So the advice of don't use cocaine, whether it's legal or illegal matters not, don't do it, it's good advice. Don't use credit cards 
is good advice. And I feel that when a person is mature enough, financially astute enough, to use a credit card, my advice not to do it, or Dave Ramsey's advice not to do it, will no longer matter. If my advice on it matters to you, don't freaking do it, because you're not ready to. All right, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ford Ferguson off of Zello, calling from Utah. I have a question about when it's appropriate for police to serve a warrant. Details are, my brother had his wedding on Saturday, and his wife's father and mother got into a disagreement. The mother called the police on the father because he had active warrants. The police showed up and asked if they could go into my grandparents' backyard where the wedding was held to arrest him. We asked, pleaded, begged for them to just wait until the ceremony, you know, maybe the cake cutting were finished, but they refused. And with my grandfather's permission, they barged their way into the backyard past many of us that were protesting their entrance. And they arrested him and all but dragged him out of the backyard. I don't believe it was a violent crime that the warrant was about, but I don't know for sure. I just would like to have an outside point of view whether this was appropriate or not. It was the Orem, Utah Police Department, and this was Saturday, May the 23rd, and it just, I was there and it seems wrong, so I'd like your point of view. Thank you. This is where people that have heard me rant against law enforcement before expect that I will get on here and do it again and say how horrible these police officers are for having the audacity to break up a wedding of all things and not simply waiting for the ceremony to be over before arresting the individual. On the surface, that seems like a reasonable request. Unfortunately, in a pragmatic world, it's not. And I'll explain to you why. And I, I feel like Doc Bones answering a vaccine question where I'll probably have a whole bunch of people hating me at the end of this because my position is logical and well thought out and in the middle of a controversial subject and will seem to even counter some of my own opinions. Okay. Now, it, so, so just starting with that, it's highly possible that this guy, whatever his original crimes were that he has warrants out for, may be crimes that I don't even think should be crimes. Okay, and I would say that's probably flip a coin, and maybe it's even you know roll a, a, a six sided dice, and it, if it comes up one or two, I would think those are actual crimes, and all the other numbers, I'd say he shouldn't even been arrested for it. It might be that that weighted. So I'm going to clarify with that first, but I'm going to tell you that even if that's the case, it doesn't matter at this point. Okay, and I want to say that I'm very sorry this happened to you, and I'm sorry this happened to your family. And this is a tragic thing, and I'm sure unless the cops are the oath-breaking asshole cops you know that we do see time to time, far too often actually, unless they're psychopaths, they probably didn't want to do it. And they probably were sensitive to it, but they were in a position where they felt they had to do it. This is, this is just a, a couple reasons why, and I'm sure most lawyers and police officers could confirm everything I'm about to say as being some of the reasons at this point you have to do it. Okay, so... When an officer is deciding whether to detain you or not, based on whether or not they believe that you've been involved with a criminal activity, they have a lot of discretion that they can use. They, they really do. More than many of them will admit. And, 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 and many of them actually exercise a lot of it. 
You know, they catch a guy with a, with an ounce of grass and go, just get the hell out of here. Okay, they're taking a risk when they do that, but in this case, they would be taking what you would consider an unacceptable ri unacceptable risk if you were asked to take it. So let's imagine the following things. I'm, a, I'm an officer. I'm set with other officers. I have a person with outstanding active warrants. That means that person belongs in custody yesterday. Okay? It doesn't mean that there's a potential. That means that the state has said this person belongs in custody now. They know they belong in custody, and they've refused to appear so that they can have their day in court, what have you. So... It's, it's a foregone conclusion. If you have warrants, I'm taking you into custody. Okay? Unless the issuing authority of the warrant says we don't want them. So that happens too. They pull a guy over. He's got warrants. Um, they contact, you know, let's, let's say the cop pulls you over and you're in Dallas and Fort Worth, Tarrant County wants you, right? And they call in and the guy has a warrant for an outstanding parking ticket or something like that. And what they'll say is, Telling me better get in here and fix this crap, but we're not willing to send it. We don't want. We, we don't. We don't have time for this, right? But if, if it's uh, for uh, molesting children, they're going to say, "Take bring." Yeah, we we got to have them, right? So there's even some discretion there. But once the issuing authority of the warrant says we want this person, and they send somebody to get you, you're going, and you're going now. You're not going after you know anything else happens. You're going now. This is where it gets to the point where this officer. A group of officers, I'm sure, can't do otherwise. Let's say they say, you know what? That's a reasonable request. Uh, how long is it till the ceremony? It's going to start 15 minutes. It'll be about a half hour, 45 minutes. Fine. We'll take them as soon as it's over. Let's say he finds out this happens. I'm not saying he would do it, but they don't know your, 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 your I guess, brother, father-in-law, I don't know what you'd call the relation to him at this point, right? But they don't know him. They have no idea who he is and what mental state he's in. Let's say that after he finds out this has happened and they're out there and they've agreed to let him go through it, he grabs a glass, smashes it, and slices her face with it. The lawsuit would be through the roof. And the danger of those officers being personally litigated against and losing their jobs would be astronomical. You're asking them to take that risk. Now, I guess he's probably an older gentleman and not likely to do it, but let's say he goes over the fence, gets away, and then something happens involving him. Same thing. Let's say he goes over the fence, falls on his head, gets a concussion, and ends up in, in uh, you know, uh, medical care. They could get sued for that, as crazy as it sounds, because he wasn't doing it in fleeing them. They had willingly chose to not apprehend him. You're asking these men to take an awful big risk to their lives and their futures for the purpose of not apprehending someone that should have been arrested as far as they're concerned a week ago, a month ago, what have you. The, the real villain here, the person that really is a sick individual, is his wife that did this at this time. I'll say this without knowing her. I'll say this without knowing her, that is a sick bitch. And I, I feel worse for you that that woman is now part of your family than I do that this man was arrested. Because if it was something like the guy was dangerous or something like that, then you wouldn't wait till this timeline to do it. They got an argument during a wedding, which is when everybody's emotions go stupid, 
especially extended family and things like that. And if you have a, 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 a guy or a girl that's the one getting married, and the parents of that individual are divorced, which is probably the case, there's a lot of stupid in there. Okay? There's a lot of stupid in there. I've seen it personally. And the stupid came over the top, and this woman made a phone call. That phone call started a process that can't end any other way. It's like we've talked about with um, code enforcement being complaint-driven. When a person has outstanding warrants and a citizen calls in and says, this is this person, this is where they are, this is what they're wanted for, it's very difficult at that point, especially if it's criminal warrants, You know, if it's not traffic tickets or something like that. Even criminal activity, you and I would say should not be criminal activity. Let's say drug warrants, right? Uh, you guys caught with a couple ounces of pot, uh, gets charged with intent to distribute, It gets a court date, doesn't show up, they issue a warrant for his arrest, um, but it's not high, high profile, it's not anything that they're really hot on, so they just figure sooner or later he'll pop up and we'll pull him over or something, we'll find it, or we'll run a sting where we run a whole bunch of warrants at once. We're not going after this one guy over this. He, he's going to turn up. He's not going anywhere. But when that call comes in and says, this person that you're looking for is here right now, If the, if the issuing authority of the warrant doesn't respond and anything happens to somebody because of that person, even if their original crime was nonviolent, lawsuit city. You knew where he was. He was a wanted, uh, it, it, you don't even say wanted criminal, wanted suspect, in defiance of the court with an open warrant. And you were told, and you did not, and he got tanked up and drunk at the wedding because he was happy to see the wedding got in his car, drove down the road drunk, and killed the family because he was drunk, not because he was malicious. He shouldn't have been able to do it because he should have been apprehended, because you were already supposed to have arrested him, and a complaint came in from a concerned citizen, just happened to be his wife, that said he was there, and you didn't go arrest him. This is the position those officers were put in. Now, we can all come up with ways where that type of thing wouldn't happen In a, in, a, in, a, in a society, even a minarchist versus a, a completely anarchist society. But that ain't the way things are. So I, my guess is these guys are like, man, I don't want to freaking do this, but we got to do this. We were, they were given lawful orders by their superiors to go apprehend a suspect that already has warrants issued. Again, I want you to understand, apprehension for an outstanding warrant or an issued warrant is different than apprehension okay, for a suspected activity. I think you did this, therefore I'm arresting you with the power that I have as an officer of law versus you're arrested, dude. You're already arrested. You're just not in custody yet. And that's the situation here. Man, I wish that didn't happen to you, but I got to say, I think the lady that did that is a sick bitch. And I know some people are going to be really upset with me for that, but, you know, again, I can't conceive of anything being so awful Did, this isn't like, oh, she just realized it and now like she's going to call on the, the cops because he has warrants. This sounds like someone that knew, got in a, 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 an argument, and decided at this moment in time to do this to this person. And, and, and being a selfish person, a selfish person who not only didn't care what would happen to him, but didn't care what would happen to her own child and to the rest of the family. And knew this would be the result of it when they did it. There's your villain in this. 
Because even if she thought, hey, you know what? He needs to, he needs to account for this stuff. She's the one that could have made the exception without any recourse from anybody whatsoever, with no risk to herself. Did it out of spite. That's the person to be angry with. Not the cops that were sent to do the job. And probably did their job with as much tact as they possibly could in a rough situation. So I won't always come down against police officers. Even when I disagree with them having to do something, I can understand why they did it and if they did it the way they should have. With that, we've got the show wrapped up for the day. Thanks for the great calls again. If you want to be on a show like this, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Remember to make your point or ask your question immediately in its totality. My question is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. All right, and then give me the details. Your call will go better that way. I promise you, you won't get frustrated and hang up and then try again. Okay, so that's the way to do your call. Make sure you have some bars on your cell phone, two or three, if you're on a cell phone, because no one will be here to tell you that you're broken up and can't be understood. So those are the rules to get on the show. I think I have a couple of calls still from this week that didn't make the cut for this week. There were good calls, uh, but we have a pretty open slate for calls next week. Eight week eight six six sixty five. Think it. If you don't like the subjects we talked about today, it is up to you to pick up your phone and call with the subjects you want discussed because this is your show. It really is. Uh, with that, I want to remind you, as your show, if you'd like to support your own show that you listen to frequently, consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. When you do that, you'll see all of the great benefits you get. It's a huge, long line of companies that give you discounts I've worked out for you. You get every episode of the show ever produced in convenient zip files. You get ebooks. You get all kinds of great stuff, and you get to support the show at about 20 cents an episode. Take advantage of the discounts. The product pays for itself. So do consider becoming a member. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service and first responders, all of you qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you a discount code to save money. Remember, do that before, not after you join the MSB. Next up, you can always support us when you shop on Amazon. It's so easy. If you listen to this show every day and get something out of it, all I'm saying is the next time you're going to go to Amazon, instead of typing Amazon.com, type TSPAS, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You'll show up at Amazon, do your shopping. We get credit for your sales. Costs you nothing. Doesn't even cost you time. It's one letter less. Please consider doing that. It really helps support the show and the work that we do here for you to continue to making it better and bringing uh, additional features to you. Also, do business with other members of this community at tspbiz.com. That just goes to the business directory on the website. Uh, today's featured business member of the directory is TNT Fabrications. They produce aftermarket Harley-Davidson GPS mounts. They provide smartphone, iPhone, iPad, gun holster, and accessory mounts as well. Check them out in the TSP business directory, and of course there'll be a link to them in today's show notes. So uh, really cool business, It's and it's Harley-Davidson, so you know what the deal is. If I have to explain, you, you just wouldn't understand anyway. I've always loved that about Harley Davidson. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you who I've always thought like just fits that that uh motto as well. Though of course they can't use it because it'd be trademark infringement or some crap like that. But Jack Daniels, Jack Daniels whiskey. If I have to explain, you wouldn't understand. And uh with that, let's talk about the closing song today. I said that you guys have probably all heard this guy sing music before, either on the show or just because he's had some big hits over the years, Jimmy Buffett. Uh, you know, Margaritaville and you know, uh, some other stuff that's, you know, really made the pop scene and, 
and, and it, was, it was popular. And a lot of people think that's all there is to Jimmy's music. This song is that other side. This is the instrumental poet uh, in Jimmy Buffett. This song is called Incommunicado, and it is a absolutely wonderful song. And I'd like you to think about the fact that it was written long before the age of cell phones. Okay, um, so it was maybe easier to be incommunicado back then. But it starts out with uh, the opening line, Travis McGee still in Cedar Key. That's what old John McDonald says. And a lot of you aren't familiar with uh, John McDonald's novels about Travis McGee. Travis McGee is an interesting, interesting literary character. Um, Travis is a guy that's like kind of marketed like a private eye guy, but he's not really. He's like a salvage uh, investigator for hire. So you have stuff lost at sea, and you hire him, and he goes out on this big boat, and they get the stuff back, and they do these investigations. And there's a lot of stuff that would be similar to uh, uh, like a detective novel. This was stuff was written back, like I think, in the 50s and 60s. Um, in it with you know conflicts and things. He's this older guy that's retired, but he's still in great shape, you know uh, that type of thing. And uh, it, it's just an interesting thing. But he lives this lifestyle of basically taking work when he needs it and otherwise just living life. Uh, and another person mentioned in here is a guy we, we all know, uh, John Wayne. And uh, the line is, On the day that John Wayne died, I found myself on the Continental Divide. Tell me, where do we go from here? I think I'll ride into town, uh, ride into Leadville and have a few beers. And he mentioned some of John's movies. I can't believe the old man is gone. But now he's incommunicado, right? Incommunicado means you're out of reach. can't talk to people. You're out of communication range. And Jimmy himself finds himself incommunicado. Before I talk a little bit more about that and, and, and all of us needing to go incommunicado once in a while so that we can reboot, I want to tell you something about this, this character, Travis McGee. Um, and... Something really interesting from one of the novels that he says about the Everglades. And this was from a book published in 1965. And this is Travis McGee speaking. And remember, I've told you kind of what he does, but this is not really about what he does, but it is related. He says, Now, of course, having failed in every attempt to subdue the glades by frontal attack, we are slowly killing it off by tapping the river of grass. In the questionable name of progress, the state is in, vast, in its vast wisdom, lets every two-bit developer divert the flow into the drag-line canals that give him waterfront lots to sell. As far north as Corkscrew Swamp, virgin stands of ancient bald cypress are dying. All the area north of Copeland had been logged out and will never come back. As the glades dry, the big fires come with increasing frequency. The ecology is changing with egret colonies, egret colonies dwindling, mullet getting scarce, mangrove dying of new diseases born of dryness. 1965. I know you think of the 60s and flower kids and all, but environmentalism was not a big deal when this was written. And uh, it's interesting at times that you hear these little lines in a song and they go back so much deeper if you actually know the person or the thing or the concept presented in the song because true artists actually tie into things like this. 
But to me, Incommunicado, the song itself is about having the life that is everything you want it to be, but also having those times to be by yourself, to be away. And I think a lot of the problems that we have in today's age are because we are never alone anymore. We are never out of comic communication range anymore. We are never free anymore. Yesterday I got a text from a friend that wanted to come by and present me with some design ideas for he has for an aquaponics system here. And I answered it this morning and said, sorry, man, I left my phone in the truck yesterday when I came back from the processor. Uh, you can come by today if you want to. And he's like, yeah. And he said something to the effect of, uh, you know, it must be, you know, truly uh, wonderful to be able to not look at your phone for a day. And, and it is. Of course, I'm an email all day, right? I even told my wife sometimes, because I have a tendency to leave my phone in my vehicle at times, uh, to, uh, if you need to get in touch with me when you're out and about during the day, send me an email from your phone. I'm more likely to see it than the phone itself. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of that. But, you know, we all need to take times where we just get away, go fishing, take a walk, whatever. And I know what people would say, but Jack, if something happens to you, You know, you could use that phone to call somebody. Okay, shut it off. Shut it off. Put it on silent. You know, it, it, it's a vibrator or whatever. If something goes on, some emergency in the world that somebody's trying to let you know about, they'll call more than once. I, I, I got to tell you guys, I get phone calls all the time. I look at the phone. I don't know the number. I don't answer it. I get a phone call from somebody I do know during dinner. I don't answer it. You know, and I'm, I'm on my wife all the time. Like, we're eating dinner. You don't need to pick the phone up. It's not an emergency. That person does not have the potential to be an emergency in your life. Don't mess with dinner, right? So sometimes it's a big incommunicado, right? I, I'm thinking about taking a really awesome float trip for tuna this fall. And I'm going to need some people from the audience that might want to do that. It costs about 800 bucks a piece, but it would be amazing. I don't think there'll be much cell phone activity out on a ship like that, you know, for like a, a three-day trip. I think it would be amazing. Um, and we need those big ones. But sometimes we need the little ones, too. So please make sure at times that you realize that the world won't stop if you're not there to fix everything. That people can take care of themselves. People can see to a problem here and there on their own without you. Give yourself the freedom to go in communicado once in a while and enjoy this song. And hopefully it brings back some memories for you. If you've ever read John McDonald, it will. And I think for everybody... Uh, from my age and older anyway, John Wayne, man, it doesn't get much better than that. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Travis McGee still in Cedar Key, that's what old John McDonald said. My rendezvous so long overdue With all of the things I've sung and I've read They still apply to me They all make sense in time But now I'm incommunicado Driving by myself down the road With a hole and it's songs with no Vibrato Taking the long way home Now on the day that John Wayne died 
Still I am in the music. 